I'm preaching to you this morning from that passage that, from a portion of that passage that's just been read to you from Luke chapter 18. Let's consider these words again. Referring to the disciples, then they also brought, or referring to parents, then they also brought infants to him that he might touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Well, in that little paragraph there, Luke records two rebukes. We observe that the disciples are rebuking parents who were bringing their younger children to Jesus, asking Jesus to bless them. Because of that, Jesus rebukes the disciples. They are doing something, and Jesus has to tell them to stop doing it. And then Jesus tells the reason why they must stop, and the reason has to do with who enters the kingdom of God. The disciples have something that's very wrong in their thinking. They have something very wrong in their understanding of the kingdom, and it's being shown outwardly in the response to these children. So if we're going to take from that what we need to believe, we need to understand what the problem is. And then after that, we need to understand, or we'll be able to understand the correction that the Lord gives to the problem. Because if you can understand the Lord's correction, there is for you this morning in this portion of God's Word very good strength and encouragement for you today. Maybe you've come today weary with the constant struggle with your sins. Then you need this today. Maybe you need strengthening in your assurance of salvation. Then you need this today. You struggle? Do you struggle ever with uh, doubts over whether the Lord's gospel promises are really being offered to such a horrible sinner as you, then you need this today. You ever think the Lord has become so exasperated with you that he isn't going to listen to, you, to any more of your prayers where you try to confess those same old sins again? You stand on the, on the outside with no profession of faith in Christ. Do you stand on the outside of the church do you stand apart from Christians sort of looking in and thinking that, well, maybe they must have all done something really good to have the Lord's welcome and to have his love? Do you think that the Lord will never bless you with his forgiveness because you don't have anything good to bring to him? Do you ever struggle thinking that a king as great as the Lord isn't going to afford someone like you any of his attention or kindness. If you think that, then this portion of God's word is for you. And by the way, you'll notice that Luke places this problem and this correction right after the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Coincidence? Or... Are we really still on the same topic of who receives the gift of God's saving love? Let's put our attention on the text and let's begin by identifying the problem. But you probably need to get yourself prepared with some humility because none of us are immune from the particular problem that we're going to see. And we need to prepare ourselves with some humility, humility because the rebuke given to those disciples is just as much for us. The problem we begin to see is that some of the disciples 
that are following Jesus have decided that they have the right to serve as, I don't know, bodyguards. They've decided they have the right to serve as guardians of the Lord, that they're going to guard his time and that they're going to guard his attention. And they've decided that they have the right to permit some and to forbid others from taking up the Lord's time, from taking up his attention. And you notice that here we we see that some of them have decided that Jesus isn't to be bothered by these children whose parents uh, want him to pray for their children, to bless them, perhaps in some cases to heal them. Now, what is it exactly here? What is the thinking about either the children or what is the thinking about Jesus that leads these disciples to draw conclusions about who is worthy to receive his blessing or his healing or any of his loving attention? They're thinking something about the children and they're thinking something about Jesus and they are wrong on both accounts. Now, this is not the first time in the Gospel of Luke, that Jesus rebukes his disciples by referring to children. So, let's go back at this point to chapter 9, and let's be reminded of this. Let's see where this has happened before. This is Luke chapter 9. Jesus has to rebuke them. He uses the illustration of a child to do it. Luke chapter 9, and here's verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be greatest. Ah, we're beginning to uncover the problem, aren't we? The disciples here in chapter 9, they've been hearing Jesus preach the the same things that we've been hearing as recorded here in the gospel. And what we all have heard is Jesus clearly, plainly, repeatedly present himself as the long, as the fulfillment or as the long prophesied Messiah, as the fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. He has very clearly been presenting himself, preaching himself, proving himself as the anointed king of the kingdom. He is the king, he has been preaching. He is establishing his kingdom, he has been preaching. And here in Luke 9, the disciples are still misunderstanding what kind of a king Jesus is and what kind of a kingdom he's building and what kind of of people this king will have in his kingdom. They're misunderstanding what kind of people Jesus will welcome into his court and welcome to his throne and be the closest to him and be the most rewarded in his kingdom. They're misunderstanding all this. And so here they are arguing. Who's the best? Who's the greatest? Who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom? This argument was the fruit, obviously, of some sinful root of pride. This argument is the result of this some sinful, self-exaltation, prideful, self-centeredness. The disciples want to be great in the kingdom. They want greatness. When they get to Jerusalem, when Jesus literally sits upon a golden chair, they want to be great. They want to have greatness at that moment. When he comes into his kingdom, each of them has worked it out in his own mind. He's mentally measuring himself. Ahead of time, right? What kind of uh, royal robe will I have? After all, because of all the contributions that I've made for this to happen. What kind of royal robe will I get? What will will my throne look like? Will my throne be closer to his throne than your throne? Who will be greatest? They're arguing like this. You, You may be here, but that's me right there. Who will be the greatest? What will I wear? Where will I sit when everything is accomplished in Jerusalem? What will I have? Will I be the greatest when the Romans are pushed out? How many servants will serve me? Will I have more than you? They're arguing. How will the king reward me for all I've done for him? They're arguing. 
They think they are great and that the kingdom is, about, is going to be about others recognizing that greatness and giving them what they have earned. Arguments of greatness are only conducted among people who think that they deserve to be recognized and rewarded by others because of their greatness above others. That's, who, that's who's involved in these kinds of arguments. Here we have each disciple trusting in his own worthiness and despising others. Each disciple despising the other disciples for not recognizing their, their greatness. And all of this in the context of how the, of how the kingdom is going to be built. Arguments about who is the greatest are conducted by people who trust in themselves and despise others. Look at them. Look at those disciples there. Look at them despising each other. Look at them jostling for position over others. Look at them forgetting that if the Lord has welcomed them into this kingdom, that it was by his grace and not because they were so great even to begin with. Look at them forgetting that. Private comparison had surely begun in their minds, and now it's breaking out into a public rivalry. Private grudges certainly were working somewhere just underneath the surface, and now they've broken out into disputing. This kind of prideful self-centeredness, it thrives on forgetfulness, forgetting who we really are. It thrives on that thing, on that kind of forgetfulness. And this argument was inexcusable because of what Jesus had already taught about the kingdom. This kind of argument was inexcusable because of what Jesus had already been preaching of himself. Let me give you one example. Jesus had already preached saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel. He has anointed me to preach the good news of salvation. He has anointed me to preach the good news of the granting of kingdom membership to those who have the riches to pay for it. Good news of kingdom membership to those who have the riches to pay for the king's attention, to those who have what it takes to pay for his favor? No. Good news to the poor, he says, who can bring no impressive resume. This is the good news of salvation preached to those who can afford no tribute of gold, no tribute of good works, who have no way to impress the king or to pay him back. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to heal. Who? Those who are already well? Those who are already strong? Those who are already perfected in holiness? No. Jesus has preached saying, He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. It's the proclamation of the good news of salvation, of kingdom membership. This is being offered to those who have nothing to mention to this king except the confession of their sinfulness. It's the good news of salvation being preached to those who have nothing to set before this king except their broken and contrite spirit with true grief over their offenses. Jesus says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim liberty. To who? To those already free? To those who have already set themselves free from the bondage of sin and from the penalty of death because of what they think they're doing or because of what they think they're not doing? Is it liberty only for those who are better than others? No. He is a king who preaches and freely offers liberty to the captives, he says. The good news of salvation, the good news of kingdom membership those who are powerless to free themselves by whatever it is they think they're doing or whatever it is they think they're not doing. Jesus preaches the recovery of sight to those who were just better born, who already have in their own souls, by their own strength, by their own wisdom, they have already the light and life of the truth. No. This is 
sight to the blind. Jesus came to set at liberty those who are already themselves free. No, liberty for those who are hopelessly, helplessly oppressed under the burden of sin and its righteous penalty. This is what Jesus has been preaching. And then those disciples here in Luke 9 argued about who was going to be the greatest in this kind of a kingdom and in the presence of this king. Inexcusable. It was a blasphemous argument. As if any of them had any resume of holiness to hand over to the king in order to get the best seat at the feast. As if their admission into the kingdom was based on their greatness as the world measures greatness. So, what's the problem? The disciples are measuring greatness, and thus they are measuring their own worthiness to have the king's best rewards. They're measuring this in terms of how the ordinary kings and ordinary kingdoms of this world operate. It's the wrong definition of kingdom greatness. That's the problem. You know that every king and every kingdom has its greatness. The kings, the ordinary kings of this earth, they display their greatness with the taking, the keeping, the growing of their gold and of their power. And how do ordinary kings glorify themselves? With the expensive and shiny and oh-so-temporary things of this world. Thrones of gold, clothes of the finest fabrics. Friends who are worth something to them. That's how the ordinary and unholy kings of this world glorify themselves. The worldly courts of greatness, the centers of power in our world, that's where you find the currency of gold and power. That's what gives you a voice. It's your gold. It's your power that gives you a voice with the king. You want to have his ear? Do you want to have his attention? Do you want to have some small favor from his hand? It's about the quality and the quantity of what you bring. What do you have to offer? Nothing? The king's not interested. That's how, think, that's how it works in the ordinary kingdoms of this world. That's the greatness of the kingdoms of this world. We measure them in terms of the, the greatness of their gold and the greatness of their power. The more merit you have, the more privileges you can buy. That's how it works. And here the apostles were arguing over who had earned Christ's best rewards and who would have the best seats and who would have the best privileges. They were imagining the holy kingdom of Christ as being like the unholy kingdoms of this world. That's why I'm saying that this was a blasphemous argument. Thrones of gold, robes of reward for their own goodness. Their sin of pride being propped up by the sin of forgetfulness. The disciples are forgetting who they are. They're forgetting who Jesus is. They're forgetting what they've already heard about what kind of a king he came to be and what kind of a kingdom he came to build. Now, here in Luke 9, notice verses 47 and 48, the correction that Jesus gives to this. And Jesus, perceiving this, perceiving that they're the wrong thinking about themselves, perceiving their wrong thinking about him, perceiving this wrong understanding of greatness, perceiving the thought in their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. The little child is an illustration of humility. 
Who is granted entrance into the kingdom of Christ? Entrance is not granted to the unrepentant who refuse to humble themselves with confession of their sinfulness and confession of their helplessness. The unrepentant who do not humble themselves, they don't go back to their houses with God's testimony that their offering was welcomed at his throne. The disciples want to argue about personal greatness. They want to argue about who will have first place in the kingdom, but then Jesus takes it. He takes a child, and he uses a child to say first-place thinking and prideful, self-serving thinking and prideful thinking about personal merit or quality or quantity as a basis for admission into the kingdom. This has absolutely no place at all in his kingdom. Consider the child. Illustration, an example of humility. The disciples are arguing about who deserves the best, but his kingdom is not a reward for those who have earned it or deserve it. Access to his throne is not paid for with the currency of our own spiritual wealth or power. It's granted by grace to the humble and to the trusting. A little child illustrates humble dependence. A little child illustrates weakness. A little child illustrates complete dependence upon love, not reward that has been earned. I have a precious little granddaughter, and she is this picture of complete and humble dependence upon the undeserved and free gift of love. She doesn't survive by her ambition. She doesn't survive or she isn't welcome into her home because she's better than other babies. She's there. She has a place by the unearned love of others. She doesn't have a place in the home as a reward for what she gives. Her place is a free gift to her. She isn't cared for and loved and given all she needs based on her resume. To think otherwise would be absurd. And thus, Jesus illustrates the absurdity of the disciples arguing over who's going to be the greatest in his kingdom. Absurd as if access to this king's throne and as if access to this king's favor and love could in any way be earned by people who have nothing to bring, by people who have nothing to present in the court of this king except the confession of their sinfulness and the confession of their humble, dependent, trusting faith in his power and his holiness. Jesus took a child, set the child in front of them to illustrate the absurdity of their argument. The beginning of Matthew chapter 18 says this. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The world lusts for the kind of power or ability whereby a person relies upon himself and carries his life by the strength of his hands. There he is. This is glory in the world. This is greatness in the world. Can you see him? There he is. He's independent. He's proud. He's fully confident in his own abilities and merit to earn and purchase whatever he needs for this life as well as for the next. Ah, that's great, isn't it? That's what greatness is in this world. But what about this king? 
entrance into the court of this king is by grace when he opens the gate through which the poor in spirit walk. The poor, the needy, who have nothing to pay, who readily confess they have nothing to pay, and who humbly, fearfully confess in the presence of this great king that they have sinned against him, and that they cannot demand any reward, but they simply beg for his merciful, undeserved forgiveness. Ah, oh, yes, Jesus says, that, that right there, that is what is great in his eyes. Is it safe to do this? Is it safe to be poor? Is it safe to be humble? Is it safe to be dependent and helpless in his presence? Yes, because this king is glorified by filling his courts with beggars. It glorifies him. Look at the ordinary and unholy kings of this world. Look at how they glorify themselves, surrounding themselves with the wealthy, surrounding themselves with the powerful who have something to contribute to the royal treasury. Ah, yes, be impressed by that. Be impressed by, their, by the glory of their gold and the glory of their power over and against the weak. In 1666, a fire broke out in the early morning hours in London in a baker's shop. And over the next four or five days, that fire destroyed two-thirds of London within the city walls. And it affected rich and poor, but especially the poor were affected, living in the poor quality homes with poor quality materials, less maintenance. It was especially devastating to the poor in the poor neighborhoods. And afterwards, there were some in the court of King Charles who expressed how glad they were that the fire had happened because it had destroyed so many of the poor. After all, in their, think, in their thinking, the less poor there are in the kingdom, the better. But what about our king? How was he glorified? You can look to King Charles and you can get an idea of the unholy kings and kingdoms of this world, but I say to you now, look to Christ, who is glorified by his mercy to the weak, who is glorified by his generosity to the poor, who can't pay him anything back. Behold his wealth of mercy. Behold his treasury of grace, his storehouse of the wealth of his righteousness. And guess what? It's not for sale. The Lord, through the prophet Isaiah, said, Come. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He who has no money, come. Buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? Why do you spend your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. And we would say of the prophet, we would say of the Lord, well, how may we have this? How may we have this bread and this wine? Though we have no money, how is it that we may come and have these things? And the Lord says, incline your ear. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Give your ear to this gospel preached by this king. Come and listen. Give your ear to this. So therefore, back in Luke 18, 
Jesus told the parable, as we studied last week, of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Where the Pharisee came to the courts of God and he presented himself and he spoke of himself as if God's favor was for sale. And as if he had the spiritual and material wealth to pay for it. And where the tax collector came as a humble, poor, dependent, trembling, yet trusting child who had no hope other than that the king would freely, mercifully grant him forgiveness. And then Luke tells us of the disciples waving off the very people who are the best illustrations of the humble and the low and the dependent and the trusting. What in the world are they doing? What in the world are they doing? The disciples were wrongly managing access to Christ because they were wrongly thinking about kingdom entrance. They are inexcusably still thinking that Jesus is going to build and organize his kingdom in favor of the worldly great and along the lines of earthly power and honor and prestige, but that's not even how Jesus grants an entrance into his kingdom. There is a kingdom with one Lord who is glorified by the magnificence of his merciful generosity with his humble, dependent children. The Lord does not grant an entrance into his kingdom as a reward for merit, but as a gift of his grace. What the humble, dependent, trusting child has is by the free gift of another. The child doesn't live, the child doesn't eat, the child doesn't have good things because of his ability to pay for it. He simply, humbly relies upon the goodness and faithfulness of another. There's no other option for children. The child is a picture of the humility of weakness. The child is a picture of the humility of dependence. The child is a picture of the humility of trusting in the mercy of others. That That right there says Jesus is greatness in his kingdom. It's not our works that we've done, but by faith in his work. That's the offering that he accepts. Not our gold, it's not our power, not what we think we're doing, not what we think we're not doing. It's this humble offering of our faith in his work. That's the offering that he accepts. That's the offering that glorifies his grace. He accepts that offering of our our repentance. He accepts that humble offering of our faith, but only because our offering is covered by the blood and payment of his offering. The altar of incense was kept pure and holy, not by wiping it off. The altar of incense was kept pure and holy and clean by the application of the blood of the burnt offering to it. And then the incense would rise and be welcomed there and envelop the mercy seat. Humble, self-loathing repentance that first looks at the altar of burnt sacrifice and confesses that we should have been consumed by wrath, and then humble, dependent, trusting faith that holds on to the promise that the sacrifice provides the safe and welcomed approach to the throne. This, all of this is what Jesus says is great. This is what is great. This is what is beautiful. This is what is accepted before his throne. Humble, dependent, 
childlike faith. This is great, Jesus says. It's, it's our repentance and faith whereby we quit trusting in ourselves and we entrust ourselves childlike completely to his mercy. Even our repentance and faith that we have is his gift to us and then this is the great gift that we return to him. This is what honors him. This is what is great. This is what adorns and beautifies his court. The repentance and faith of his people. Look, look by faith into the court of this king and your eyes will be dazzled by truth. Look at this Look at the splendor of the truth in the court of our king. There they are. There, there are his people assembled together. There they are laying before their king their humble confession of the truth of their poverty. There they are doing that with grief over their sins. There they are doing that with a hunger for righteousness. This is greatness. When his people openly declare that they are poor beggars before his throne, but there they are resting boldly confident in his promise that the eternal heavenly treasure has been purchased for them. Oh, look at the splendor of the truth in his court. This is greatness. Look into the courts of the ordinary and unholy kings of this earth and you'll see people playing the games of honor. And you'll see the people there playing the games of worthiness. You'll see them there playing the games of bribery, trusting in themselves, promoting themselves before the king, despising others. And you'll see those ordinary and unholy kings actually promoting it for whatever it might offer to them. Go ahead, put your eyes on the ordinary and unholy kings and kingdoms of this world. Look at the people in those courts trying to outdo each other, trying to outmaneuver each other for the point of proving their worthiness, for the point of bringing attention to their own worthiness, all for the point of earning the king's acceptance. But now look into the court of Christ the King. And you will behold the splendor of the truth of true worthiness when his people sing out saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Listen to them as they pray this song, as they sing their prayers. Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. You can, you can hear them not demanding any reward. You can hear them not expecting reward for their worthiness, but you hear them instead openly, thankfully, joyfully, with a sense of amazement, confessing that they are the ones who needed redemption from their sins by the worthy sacrifice of the Lamb. Oh, behold the splendor of truth. Behold this greatness in the court of this king. Behold his glory. Behold his worthiness. Behold his beauty. You can hear the truth as they sing out, the truth of their humble dependence upon the riches of the king's merit, the riches of the king's grace. You can hear their trust in His power. You can see their eyes turn to His glory. But when that Pharisee went up to the temple to pray, he brought into those courts defiling lies. Look at him there, trusting in all of his riches. Look at him there, trusting in all of his own Holiness with no dependence upon the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lamb of God. He came to the temple already full. He came to the temple already complete by his own bold and proud estimation. 
which is why he left with nothing more than what he brought. There was no room in his hands to receive anything. He didn't humbly ask for anything. He brought blessing or praise for his own worthiness, for his own power, for his own riches, treating the Lord as if he's just like any other old old king. Which made his approach and his standing there in the courts of God blasphemy. The Lord? Oh yeah, I've seen this before. The Lord's a king? Yeah. Like any old king. His kingdom like any other old kingdom. He's like any other king who affords his favor only to the worthy who can pay him back and well, here I am. This is the Pharisee. There he was, trusting in himself. There he was, basking with praise in his own goodness. And then he noticed, ooh, the tax collector over here. Ooh. What is he doing here? Ugh. This tax collector who obviously had no spiritual strength, who obviously has no spiritual riches. What is he doing here? God, I thank you, says the Pharisee. God, I thank you that I'm not like him. Look at him, look at him over there. Oh, Lord, the Pharisee is thinking to himself, Oh, Lord, you, you must be just as embarrassed and as offended as I am by the presence of such lowliness, you and I being as great as we are. Surely, O Lord, you are too great to afford any of your attention to that. Surely, O Lord, you are too great to afford any of your attention or your time or any good thing to the, to the lowly, the humble, the broken, the poor, the sick, the blind. After all, O great Lord, what do they have to offer to you? Especially in light of all that I have to offer says the Pharisee. And what did that embarrassing tax collector bring before the king? What did he bring to earn the king's love? Because that's what you do, right? You bring something. That's what you do with the ordinary kings. That's what, that's what ordinary kings expect. What's your contribution That's what ordinary kings do when they look at their subjects. What do you add to me? What do you bring to me? How do you improve me? Nothing. Next. You have something? Let's talk. That's how it works ordinarily. Tax collector, what did he bring? Well, he brought the same thing that a young child brings to the home to earn the love of her parents, which is precisely nothing. Because first of all, he didn't have anything to bring. Because second, that love isn't earned. That love isn't deserved. If there is any granting of love, if there is any granting of forgiveness, if there is any granting of mercy in the courts of that king, it's freely granted Because it glorifies the grace of the king. It magnifies the wealth of this king. Draws attention to his beauty when he freely offers mercy to the undeserving. What an unusual king he is. I wonder if that's strengthening your soul to consider that. What an unusual king he is. How unlike the ordinary kings he is. That poor tax collector, he comes to the temple. He comes there uh, empty. He arrives poor, hungry in his soul. That was the reality with him. But more than that, he agrees that that was the reality. Did this confession of the truth, did it bother God like it bothered the Pharisee? Is the Lord put off by this intrusion into a schedule? 
Does the Lord say, what is this? How dare this empty-handed beggar come into, come into my presence? Don't you realize who I am? Who are you? Poor, broken, blind, oppressed. How dare you? How dare you think that you can come into my great presence? Is that what the Lord says to him? Where's your tribute? Don't you realize who I I am? Where's your contribution to my treasury? Does God look upon that beggar and ask, what are you going to add to me? No, the Lord doesn't do any of that. That sinner brought his empty hands. That sinner brought his dirty soul. He brought his confession. He, He confessed this poverty before the Lord, placing all of his trust placing all of his hope into the hands of him who fills and adorns and beautifies his palace with with the trophies of his grace. Jesus tells us that the tax collector stood afar off. He came to the temple, but he stood afar off. But the psalmist tells us that God is near to those who have a broken heart. The psalmist tells us that God is near to those who have a contrite spirit. And then Luke records the moment when some of the the disciples are shooing away those who are the perfect illustration of the lowly, the humble, the dependent, the trusting, who need everything provided for them and who can't pay for any of it. The the Pharisees and those disciples at that point misunderstand the kind of greatness welcomed by this king. And why do they misunderstand the kind of greatness welcomed by the king? It's because they were misunderstanding the greatness of the king. You remember Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, who made the incense offering in a way not commanded by God. They approached God as if he can be regarded as just any old God, and just any old approach will be fine with him because he's just any old God. If God had accepted their proud defiling of his courts, the message to everybody would have been that God is just like any of the other false gods that, prop, that get uh, propped up in men's imaginations. No different would have been the message. But you remember what Moses said to Aaron. When it wasn't the smoke of incense, it was the smoke of human flesh. And he said to Aaron, this is exactly what the Lord said. This is exactly why he made all of these arrangements, that he must be regarded as holy. So therefore, imagine what would have been the message if Jesus had allowed the disciples to form this security around him to protect him from the intrusions of the lowly and the helpless and the dependent and the trusting who had no money, who could afford no price, who had no contribution, who had no bribe. What would have been the message? The message would have been that Christ came to build a kingdom just like any other old kingdom and that he came to be a king just like any other unholy king of this earth. That's the message that would have been sent. We remember earlier in the gospel, Peter falling down at Jesus' knees, crying out, saying, Lord, depart from me, from me, for I am a sinful man. That is the confession of the poor in spirit. And when Jesus told Peter, do not be afraid, that was the gift of grace. When that leper fell on his face before Jesus and he implored him saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
That's the begging of the poor in spirit who humbly confess they must be cleansed if their worship is going to be allowed to touch the throne. And and then Jesus said to that man who had nothing to offer, who brought nothing to Jesus but his filth, to that man Jesus said, I am willing. It was the gift of his cleansing was the gift of his grace. When a paralyzed man and his friends figure out a way to get him through a roof and to put him in front of Jesus, that's the desperation of the poor in spirit. And when Jesus saw their faith in him, he said to that man, your sins are forgiven. That was a gift of the riches of heaven people who had nothing to pay for it. When Levi rose up and left everything at the call of Jesus, that's what the poor in spirit do when they have found him who is worth losing everything else which wasn't really that valuable to begin with. Can you tell what Jesus is doing? Can you tell what he's doing? Jesus is assembling his house. Do you know what conquering and victorious kings do? They build houses for themselves. They conquer. They become established in their authority. And then they put their glory, the glory of their power, they put the glory of their authority, they put the glory of their wealth, they put the glory of everything that makes them great on display. And they do this in different ways, but especially with the construction of their palace. When you see the establishing of the dwelling place of the king, then you know that the king is established. And when you behold the greatness of the palace, you understand his greatness. Do you want to understand something of the greatness of a king? Because after all, that was the original problem, right? Misunderstanding greatness. Do you want to understand the greatness of a king? Do you want to have an idea of his power? Do you want to have an idea of his wealth? Well, you look at his house. You look at his palace. And our Lord doesn't build with dead stones. He doesn't build his house, and display his wealth and power through gold and silver. He's building a palace worthy and fitting for the kind of king he is. And he is the kind of king who is building a house that shows the wealth of his grace. He's building a house that shows his power to place heavenly riches into the open hands of the begging poor. Now, what power is that? Ordinary kings may at times have power to save their subjects from the power of an invading army, but Christ puts his power on display He puts his wealth, his glory on display by delivering his people from the power of death. Ordinary people, ordinary kings may give their people land, but Christ gives his people eternal life. What a king. What a king. Ordinary kings fill their courts with the rich, They fill their courts with the powerful. They fill their courts with the healthy. But our king glorifies his greatness by welcoming to his throne the poor that he enriched. He welcomes to his throne the hungry that he has filled. He welcomes to his throne those who were dead but he made alive by his word and spirit. By shooing away the humble... By dismissing the dependent and the poor who have nothing to offer to Christ, the disciples 
were getting in the way of the most magnificent palace construction ever. The disciples had something very wrong in their understanding of the kingdom. They were misunderstanding the greatness of those who enter the kingdom. The greatness of humble, dependent trust. They were misunderstanding the greatness of the king. So do you ever struggle with thinking that a king as great as the Lord isn't going to afford someone like you any of his time any of his attention or any of his kindness. Your misunderstanding is greatness. Behold, by his word today, the greatness of this king and come again to him. Bring, bring your weariness. If that's all you feel like you can bring today, your weariness and your discouragement with your struggle, with your sins, bring that and lay that at his feet. And you've laid it before his feet before, haven't you? Countless times, lay it before him again. Because he's great. And he welcomes the poor. And he welcomes the beggars. He fills his court with those who have nothing to lay before him but a confession of their sinfulness, who, bring, who can bring nothing before him before, of begging for his mercy. This, this Christ says, oh, this, this is beautiful. This is great. This adorns my court, he says. Do you need strengthening of your assurance of salvation? Consider how great he is. Let his greatness not turn you away. Let his greatness draw you in. That you are safe with him. That beggars are safe with him. That the poor are safe with him. That the blind are safe with him. That the oppressed are safe with him. The good news of his preaching, the good news of his kingdom is offered to those people. Do you struggle with doubts over whether the Lord's gospel promises are really being offered to such a horrible sinner as yourself? Well, who who else are the promises being offered to? Who else would they be offered to? They're, They're offered to exactly the person like you. For it glorifies him. It magnifies the beauty of his grace, it magnifies the the wealth of his mercy to the poor who can't pay for anything, who can only bring their poverty, who can only confess their poverty to him. This is an adornment in his court. This beautifies his court. For his court to be filled with beggars who come before him and, and who simply say, Lord, have mercy upon us, we're sinners. Lord, have mercy upon us, we're sinners. Do you ever think the Lord has become so exasperated with you that, he, that you think he isn't going to listen to any more of your prayers where you bring the same old confession of the same old sins? That's what the disciples must have been thinking as they're shooing away. But no, the Lord says, bring, bring these people to me. Bring these people to me. Bring me the poor. Bring me the blind. Bring me the sick. Bring me the ugly. Bring me the defiled. Bring me those who have nothing to give to me. Bring those who have no bribe. Bring those who have no tribute of gold, who can offer no tribute of power. Bring them to me, says Jesus. These are the ones that the Lord loves to bless. These are the ones the Lord loves to welcome to himself. Because it it shows how great he is. It shows the greatness of his love. It shows the greatness of his grace. It magnifies his tender compassions. What an amazing king this is. How unusual he is. How unlike 
the unholy and ordinary kings of this world. You ever struggle with thinking that a king as great as the Lord isn't going to afford someone like you any of his time or any of his attention or any of his kind? No, it's because he is so great that you ought to come to him. But all I have is, are my sins. That's right. That's all you have. That's right. That's the truth. And his courts are adorned with the beauty of that truth, with the beauty of that confession. If all we have to bring to him is a confession of our sinfulnesses, if what we bring to him is this humble, self-loathing repentance with grief over our sins, with a hungering for righteousness, when we bring this offering of our faith whereby we've first looked to the altar of burnt offering, where we first have looked and we've said, yes, Lord, that's, that should have been me. I should have been consumed by your fiery wrath, that should have been me. It would have been right. It would have been just. This is beautiful. This is great. When that faith makes its approach and burns the incense, that's the prayer, that's the worship that ascends and it moves into the holy of holies and it envelops the mercy seat. And it's, that, that's what God allows to touch His throne But why, you would say, why would God do that? Why would he permit this? Because it glorifies his mercy. It glorifies his grace. It glorifies the holiness of his love. The holiness of his mercy. The holiness of his tender compassions. And if you'll take that in today and contemplate the greatness of God your soul will find the strength that it needs today.